Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Mark Eckler, who is a serial entrepreneur and managing partner at Math Venture Partners. Recently, he published his book that he co-wrote with Mert Azari called Exit Right, which is about how to position and think about a successful exit well before it happens. So this episode is all about exits, which is quite unique for this podcast since we don't typically talk about how to exit right, what that looks like, how to kind of prepare yourself for that. So without further ado, here's Mark. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Oh, Mike, I'm good. You know, I'm in Chicago and the sun is shining and life is good. I'm so excited. I was really looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. I'm really looking forward to it as well. So excited to have you on the show. Um, I really enjoyed reading the book that you co-wrote with Mert, um, Exit Right. And I'm also really excited for this conversation because this is not really an area we talk about on this show, exits, right? And it's not really one that you kind of think about because you're so focused as the entrepreneur, making sure your business is actually a business, right? And actually a functioning business and actually is like surviving every day. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The decisions that entrepreneurs make at the beginning of their journey have an outsized impact at the end of their journey. And, you know, let's dig into that because how they view and think about equity and who they give equity to and how that's structured really is going to make a difference at the end. And we don't talk about exits because there's a stigma. You know, most entrepreneurs think, let's just focus on the on building the business. And if I raise the concept of an exit, my investors, my board won't think that I'm engaged. And so people, you know, CEOs and entrepreneurs, we tend not to discuss it very much. So I like I'd love to dig in. Yeah, I mean that's actually leads me to my you know first question here. And obviously, you're you know a serial entrepreneur. You run and founded Math Ventures. You you have a lot of experience on both sides of the table. You're a legend, so I'm also just kind of my my <laughs> legs are shaking just chatting with you. I'm so excited. But you know, it seems like there's kind of like a one way street that's happening, especially in the early days of talking about exits, right? Like if you put exits at all on your pitch deck, for example, that's immediately a turnoff. From investors, right? right? And but it's okay for investors because, of course, you know, ultimately they do want an event, right? They do want an exit because ultimately, like their goal at the end of the day, they are capital allocators, and their goal is obviously to return capital. And they certainly have their own timelines, whether it's you know five years, seven years, ten years, in order to to do that return capital. And yet, it seems like it's fine. For investors to talk about, oh, well, what's the exit potential for this company? But not okay once the founder or an operator does it because, you know, as you say, it seems like then they're not focused on their business per se. I mean, as an investor at Math, like, what are your kind of thoughts on this kind of subject? So let, let's differentiate between before we make an investment and once we make an investment, right? So before we make an investment, all VCs, you know, we all have our investment thesis and we're all doing our analysis of how large an opportunity this could be. And so an exit is a really important part of our calculus. You know, we say to ourselves, does this deal 
have at least the potential to return the fund. You know, is this deal going to be large enough that it warrants one of our precious slots? And so before we make an investment, we think a lot about that. We think a lot about the potential size and scale of a business. You know, once we make an investment, Paul Graham famously said, you know, just put your head down, just focus on building and growing and scaling your business. Don't talk to corp dev, just like, just build a great business and good things will happen. And, you know, we disagree. Yes, we agree, put your head down and build a great business. But we think that an exit talk, an exit conversation is strategic, not tactical. And we have this idea in the book called an, an annual exit talk where once a year it's regularly scheduled and the CEO can talk with their board in an open and transparent way and say, you know, how are we doing? You know, it's still early. We still have lots of growth in front of us or, you know, we're still getting lots of market share or things are starting to slow down. Competition's heating up. Technology's getting a little bit older or it's going to require a lot more resources. Hey, you VCs, are you in for the next round and the round after that? And, you know, what's the best home for the technology? What's the best home for our customer base? How can we really continue to grow and reach the potential of the company. And if you have that open and strategic conversation, it gives you the luxury of time. And it's not just from the CEO's perspective, it's also from the VC's perspective. So Mike, you already said that. All VCs, we have, our agenda is really simple. We expect Y return over X time frame. You know, and if you're in year one of our a VC fund cycle, yeah, we got plenty of time. If you're in year 10 of our VC fund cycle, well, guess what? We're going to start having pressure from our LPs to return capital. And it's not just us, but it's all the VCs in your deal. And we all have different fund cycles. And we don't really talk to each other about our own internal fund cycles and when we start having pressure to return capital. So by having an open and transparent conversation, we can build alignment. And that alignment gives you the luxury of planning. Because if you have time, say 18 months, two years, and you know the buyer is a more likely a strategic buyer than a financial buyer, and maybe they care more about top line growth you could tweak the, you know, you could spend a little bit more money on sales, spend a little bit more money on marketing, juice the top line growth, because that's how you're going to drive the most value. Or if they really care about your intellectual property, if you have time, you can make sure your house is in order, that all your patents are appropriately filed, your trademarks, your data room is clean, that your employees have all signed their employment agreements with their intellectual property transferred to the company. Or if it's a financial buyer who really cares more about the bottom line, well, then, you know, you can tweak a little bit and focus on profitability. But it gives you the opportunity to have that strategic conversation and to thoughtfully plan and prepare. That makes a lot of sense. When you're planning and preparing, so I know that one of your, one of the big I guess, themes that I took away from in your book is obviously is building trust. And I think very, very different to different in Paul Graham's approach in that you want to actually start building relationships very early on 
in that process with corporate development, which I know you pointed in Exit Right to, and kind of build those trusts. But how do you also build trust? I mean, as well, when you think about okay, you know, if it's a if it's a financial buyer, we're gonna and they're focused on top line revenue, then we're gonna tweak those numbers. Or you know, maybe if it's strategic, they're more focused on EBITDA. How do you? approach if you're building relationships with corporate development teams at strategics but then also at the same time building relationships too at you know maybe some of the the PE shops or or even you know competitors how should you think about building your business does that kind of make it more confusing to you also or or not really no not really you know trust is the currency that flows through deals and all deals have their ups and downs. There are moments in every single transaction where the deal hangs by a thread, where there's always a challenge. And oftentimes it's that personal trust that looking you the other person in the eye and say, we got this, we're gonna work this out together, that gets deals through to the end of the, you know, to completion. And when we wrote the book, it was so much fun. We interviewed dozens and dozens of CEOs and we said, okay, Give us the real story. Like, don't just tell us the good stuff. Tell us the bad stuff. Tell us, what do you know today that you wish you had known before you sold your company? And if you had an adult kid who was selling a business, what would you tell them? What are those nuggets? And we're big believers in empathy. So we interviewed all the stakeholders around a transaction. Some of the top M&A attorneys, you know, at Goodwin, at Wilson Sonsini. We talked to... M&A bankers, and we talked to the heads of corp dev at all the major tech companies, at Apple and Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon and, you know, Twitch and just Atlassian and Snowflake. And we said to the leaders of corp dev, okay, give us an example of your best deal and why, what made it work. Give us an example of some of your worst deals and why, because deals fall apart. Uh, even post-transaction, a lot of deals don't achieve their what they were set out to achieve. And what do you wish CEOs knew before they came to talk to you? And the number one thing they said was trust, is we wish CEOs would come to us before they're ready to sell their company so we could build a relationship and we can start to get to know them. And that opportunity of building a relationship over time, it's also bi-directional. Not only can the CEO start to build those relationships, but they could also learn from the bigger company what are their strategic strategic objectives, what do they care about, where are their holes, where are they heading, where are they missing. And it's an opportunity to learn as well as to share. And when I say share, I'm not talking about trade secrets or or some you know financials. But it's an opportunity to demonstrate thought leadership. It's an opportunity to add value. Mike, I'll go on on, on one quick tangent here. So I have uh, an empathy framework. And so I have three rules of empathy. And they are, one, it's not about you. It's always about the person sitting across the table from you. And so most entrepreneurs... We are just so laser focused on who we are, what we do, our product does X, Y, Z. And it's never about you. It's about your customer or it's about the larger acquiring company or it's about the venture capitalist who's going to invest in you. It's always about the person sitting across the table from you. It's not about you. My second rule of empathy is do your homework. 
really do your homework. There's no excuse to go into an important meeting and not be prepared. And let me give you an example in this case. If you're talking to a publicly traded company, you should listen to their quarterly earnings call ahead of time. You should read their S1. Everything you need to know about that quarterly company, like they're gonna tell you if you just listen. You know what I would do? I would go to the analysts who cover the larger company and I'd go talk to the analysts. Like, what questions are you asking? What are you tracking? What are their KPIs? Like, really do your homework. And then my last rule of empathy is bring a gift. And so what I mean by that is add value to the conversation. Because it's not about you, it's about them. You should be able to demonstrate your value. It could be you can talk about market trends. It could be an understand, deeper understanding of customers. It could be noticing um, where technology is heading and, and some understanding of the future tech or market, you know, so like there's always something of value you can add. And so I'm a huge believer in building relationships over time. I also really appreciate that. Those, um, and I and, and thanks so much for for sharing your three rules and empathy and how as well you can you know use those three rules to build relationships, right? Um, um, especially, I mean, as you say, like if it's a public company that you're trying to build a relationship to, you know, all the information is is publicly available, uh, pretty much. I mean, not of course all the information, but um, but there's a lot a lot you can learn from studying S one, from you know studying their their quarterly reports. Um, and so that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and listening to the questions that they're fielding, like I know your focus on the consumer. Bear with me for one second. One of the questions I ask salespeople or enterprise salespeople is, who's your champion? It's always somebody. And I say, well, what are their KPIs? And they look at me like they're crazy. I I go, no, no, no. When your champion gets a a bonus at the end of the year, what's that predicated upon? Because human nature is we gravitate to how we're measured and how we're rewarded. And so if you want to know, you want to know how to solve a problem, find out what their KPIs are. Find out what they're reporting on. Find out... How do they measure their business? I think also to like kind of going back a little bit with this notion of, you know, potentially there might be some misalignment between VCs and, and, and founders around this. You know, you know, we've already talked about, you know, some of the um, other content that's um, uh, that's out there about um, you know, whether or whether or not you should build relationships with corp development teams and, you know, maybe potential acquirers. In your book, you mentioned how, you know, the majority of I think I think you say that the majority of software deals are 75 million and below, right? And there's not like a need for a banker. Of course, I mean, depending on, you know, how you're capitalized and, you know, maybe who the VCs are, that's not a, you know, that's typically not, you know, a great outcome for VC, right? They're looking for it's not like the outlier that you're kind of chasing, right? And so, you know, in the VC's mind, if those maybe are likely outcomes, like why should you maybe from their perspective, why should you actually build relationships with these potential acquirers, even though it could be a great outcome for the founder, right? How do you think about like this in terms of when you think about like exit potential? Well, first of all, how much time do you think a founder spends raising money? You know, if they're on a fundraising cycle, 18 months, you know, once every 18 months, once every two years, and how long does it take to raise? Three months if it's good, six months if it takes a little bit longer. You know, think about how much in it, let's say in a 10-year cycle, 
how much of the 10 years a founder is spent raising money? It's a really good chunk of time. Now, think about how much time they're spending selling the company. Weeks? Months? Right? It's crazy. You're spending all this time raising money and very little time when maximizing the return. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of like ass backwards. And so from a, a VC perspective, look, the reality is, according to the National Venture Capital Association, 67% of the companies who receive venture backing, knowing that most can't get venture backing, 67% return less than 100% of the capital they receive. So think about that. 67% failure rate. Now, it could be they receive, you know, return a dollar or they return nothing. But there's a, you know, in the middle. I mean, there's a continuum there. But 67% fail. So the ones that succeed, and the vast majority of the ones who succeed, they're like 2 to 5x return. They're not the giant home run. You know, they're the sub $100 million. You know, statistically, the headlines are great. Oh, yeah, there's another unicorn today, right? But the reality is for every one unicorn, there's tens of thousands of companies who don't deliver. And so, look, we care. VCs care. We care about maximizing the return on every deal. And we want the founders, you know, even if it's a 2x or a 3x, it's still accretive and it's important. And so we want to make sure we get the, be the most we can, the most value we can, which actually probably brings us to the most important part of the book, which is our FAIR framework. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, those are all great points. And it's funny too, because I think that a phrase that's become really popular at VCs is that we're founder friendly. But I think that what's actually kind of interesting is founder friendly to me would be as well, like, hey, go out and also develop these relationships with, you know, corporate development people. Think about, you know, these types of things because even if as well, even if you aren't, you know, the unicorn, right? You can make a really healthy return for yourself, right? And life-changing money, even if, you know, as a fund, this might not return our fund themselves, right? Yeah. Hey, by the way, this concept of founder friendly. So, I'm kind of I don't know if you remember the Muppet show. I'm kind of like those old guys on the balcony, you know, like, hey, you kids, get off the lawn. The, like, I believe in business fundamentals, and I think the business fundamentals always matter eventually. And we've been in a historic run where many VCs have never lived through down economic times and down markets. And this founder-friendly is just sort of a substitute for saying, I'm not going to negotiate with you. I don't care about valuation because as long as the markets are going up, the greater fool theory, the next guy down the line is going to pay more. Me personally, I think the fundamentals always matter. And I think that we, if there's a pendulum, and the pendulum was one way where it was very founder friendly, I think in the next couple of years as cash tightens up, I think that you're going to find the terms to be more appropriate from a risk management perspective. And so most entrepreneurs really focus on valuation these days because in a standardized NVCA doc where the only term really to focus on is valuation, great, you focus on valuation. But boy, founders out there, beware. When cash tightens up, it's not just valuation, it's you know, participating preferred. 
its preferences are 2x or 4x. It's a dividend with a high dividend coupon. You know, one of the things in the book we talk about is the waterfall distribution, which is just a fancy way of saying at the end of a transaction, who gets what, how much money goes to which uh, class of shareholder. And, you know, the only thing that really, it's not about how much money you raise, because the more money you raise, the higher the bar you have to return. It's not about valuation, because once again, the higher the valuation, that's just the higher the threshold that you have to return. It's about how much are the common shareholders in the money when there's a transaction at the end of the day. And boy, the world is about to change. I absolutely agree. One of like the big also takeaways, I know you you brought it up uh, before, is your FAIR framework. I'd love to kind of fit, alignment, integration, and rationale. I'd love to kind of go through those four with you and how you know founders can really think about this framework um, as a concept when they're thinking about um, you know a potential acquisition. Well, you know, when writing the book, it was so much fun doing all these different interviews. And part of the interviews is pattern recognition. We started hearing the same story over and over again in different permutations. And we were able to to build a framework for how we thought about what made a great transaction. And so it's, it's fair. So it's fit, alignment, integration, rationale. So fit is cultural fit, you know, is, is, my partner Mertz likes to say, if you're sitting on a plane for five hours with somebody and you're trapped, at the end of those five hours, are you energized or just grateful to get off the plane? Like, you know, it, it's really hard to figure out if there's a good cultural fit. You know, an example might be uh, Zappos and Amazon, which were an amazing cultural fit. Like, it was perfect. And a bad example might be um, Time Warner and AOL, which couldn't have been more different from one another and ended in disaster. So cultural fit is really about how do decisions get made? What are our values? How do people get promoted? How do we communicate? You know, is this a place that you're going to want to live? Is this a place, I'm a big believer in servant leadership. And so, you know, it's not just about the CEO. It's are your employees going to be happy there? Are your customers going to be taken care of, you know, right? So the first thing is, is fit. The second is alignment. And alignment, both sides of the story. So in, internally, is your board aligned? Is you, are you aligned with your co-founders? Are you aligned with your employees, your customers? Are you aligned at home with your family? We heard so many stories about spouses or significant others who had just had it. You know, it's been 10 years, 15 years. It's like the wife is just saying, I don't care, sell now. Like, <laughs> you know, because it, it, we, look, one of the things we don't talk enough about, I'll speak for myself. The, I, you know, I started four businesses. The first 10 years of my marriage, and we're coming up on our 40th wedding anniversary, is I, I put my wife through hell. I, I mean, she, she, I, I was very comfortable with risk. She was not very comfortable with risk. And, you, you know, she didn't have, she had, had a voice, but, you know, I, I was going to be an entrepreneur. So, you know, you got to make sure you build alignment with your family. And you have to make sure there's alignment from the acquiring company. So it's not just your champion. You know, maybe your champion's ahead of product. But is the CFO aligned? 
Is the CEO aligned? Is the board of directors aligned? Is the head of product management or the general manager for that division? You know, a lot of times we've seen deals fall apart because the champion at the acquiring company can't get alignment internally. And the CEO thinks, oh, well, it's not my job. It's not my job to build alignment with the acquiring company. And we disagree. It's like, look, you can't outsource that. You can't say, like, like if you think it's going to take our differing opinions about whether or not this transaction should happen, you should do everything in your power to work and f- build alignment on the acquiring company side to the extent that you can. So the next, uh, that's uh, fit alignment integration. So integration is the ugly stepchild of all transactions. Everybody waits till the end to do integration. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Let's get the transaction done. Let's get the numbers done. And we'll worry about integration afterwards. But integration is everything. Like, how is this, these two companies going to come together? Um, and let me make it why it has economic impact. In many transactions, there's an earnout, meaning you get paid so much up front and you get paid so much in the future based on some objectives, some performance objectives. If those performance objectives are tied to sales integration or sales forecast of your product going into the acquiring company's sales distribution, or is based on you building out the next version of your product that requires engineers to do it, or you don't get the resources necessary to grow and scale the business, Integration can cost you ton of money. And we urge the entrepreneurs to talk about into building an integration plan before they sign a term sheet, not after they sign a term sheet. Because the minute you sign a term sheet, you've lost 90% of your leverage, your negotiating power and leverage. So building the integration plan, and we also, I'm a big believer once again of servant, a CEO as a servant leader. Are you taking care of your employees? Are you making sure they're getting their options vested? Are you making sure that their salaries are at the appropriate level? Are their job titles are at the appropriate level? The last piece is the most important piece, which is rationale. Rationale is, can you explain in a very simple way, so simple that your grandmother could understand it, why one plus one equals 100? How does putting these two companies create more value? And that's how you get your best deal. So most people think, all right, it's time to sell the company. The best deal is whoever pays me the most money. Maybe, maybe. But we think finding the organization to give you the best deal is by building the best rationale of how these two companies that come together will create extra value. If your product goes into their sales and distribution, sells into their customer base, what would that be worth? You know, um, if you had a, a product that improved uh, checkout conversion and you had a million in revenue, that's great. It's a million in revenue. If Amazon had a product, had your product that improved checkout conversion, what's that worth to Amazon? So I have a couple of really interesting stories about that. So the first is, is most companies, when they go to sell, they describe the sale in terms of a multiple. 
could be a multiple of revenue, top line revenue, it could be a multiple of EBITDA, but it's always a multiple of revenue. And that multiple is looking backwards, not forwards. That's what we did in the past. What we want to know is what can we do together in the future? And so, you know, um, I'll give you two stories. One is uh, one that everybody knows, which is um, Instagram and Facebook. When Facebook bought Instagram in 2011, I think it was, you know, everybody thought Mark Zuckerberg lost his mind. They gave him, they, they bought it for a billion dollars, a billion dollars, and the company had 14 employees and no revenue. What was he thinking? How, what an idiot. He bought it for a billion dollars. And I think, in, if I read this correctly, in 2019, I think uh, Instagram represented $21 billion on the bottom line for Meta for Facebook. He got a, he stole it. Like, like he got the, the bargain of the century because what he understood the rationale, the rationale was, look, Facebook was on desktops. They weren't in mobile at the time. And Instagram really owned mobile. And so most of people were looking at Instagram on their phones. And they said what the rationale was, look, if you put our cust- our viewership against with your your sales engine to monetize it and we can bring Facebook into the mobile world this is going to be this is your mobile strategy this is going to be worth gazillions and it turned out to be so that's an example of looking forward that's a rationale and let me give you a much more simpler rationale when I, I love this story my partner Troy Hennikoff in 1991 he had a a little dev shop and it was doing about a million in revenue. And he built for Hyatt, he built a little inventory management system that he owned, that he had the rights to. And one day he gets a, a meeting with Medline, which is a big uh, medical distribution company. They sell, they sell uh, durable products to uh, hospitals. And the CEO of Medline said to Troy, when he heard about this, this um, inventory management system, he goes, could you use that for hospitals? Troy said, sure, we could adapt it for hospitals. He goes, great, I want to buy your company. Troy, Troy went, it was a, you know, un, an unidentified flying offer. Like, like, he came in. Troy goes, ah, I, I, my company's not for sale. I'm happy to, to partner with you and, you know, but, and build it for you, but uh, we're not for sale. So they made him an offer, and Troy said no. It made him another offer. Troy said no. Finally, they offered him $5 million for a dev shop. That with doing a million in revenue was 5x. And Troy went, uh, okay, five, like, 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 okay. Right? And Troy thought, oh my God, I got the deal of the century. These guys, they don't know what they're doing. They just gave me $5 million. Well, he never asked the question, well, why? Why are you giving me $5 million? Like, why do you care about this inventory management system? So it turns out they adapted the inventory management system for hospitals. And what Medline did is they went to their hospitals and they said, if you, you currently are on a one-year contract, if you make it a three-year contract, we will give you this inventory management software for free. In the first year, they generated an incremental $120 million of incremental revenue from this inventory management software. Now, what's the value of $120 million to Medline? If it's a 5X multiple, just to be consistent, that's over $500 million, right? $600 million. That was year one. What about year two, year three, year four? They generated 
over a billion dollars of value and they paid $5 million for it. So, so Troy, who thought, oh, I got the greatest deal ever, he didn't realize, he didn't understand the rationale of why putting one plus one equals 100. Because going back to my empathy framework, you know, my empathy rules, it's not about you, do your homework. It's always about the acquiring company. So the way you build real value in a transaction is not looking backwards, it's looking forwards. Well, it seems like I really appreciate, first of all, you outlining the entire FAIR framework and as well as how you and Mert were able to create this framework. And I really love those two examples. It seemed like in both those examples, the acquirer really had a vision or understanding of how the two companies together, as you say, can go one plus one equals 100 and really could you know, take off. Really, really loved, wow, just both those examples. If you're the entrepreneur, right, and how could you storytell leverage this to have the company, the acquirer, focus on you know the the increasing value that you could bring instead of focusing on the past, right? Because in these examples, like the acquirers both did, ext- I mean, not that the entrepreneurs didn't do well. I mean, they both did you know extremely well, but the acquirers, you know, really were able to pull a ton of value. Uh, from those two companies. How could entrepreneurs leverage this? Well, that's why you have to do your homework. So the, the Jedi mind trick is just, just start asking questions. It's like, well, first of all, if you've built a relationship over time, you've built some trust. And as you build that trust, you start to understand what they really care about. And so when it's time, when they finally come to you and say, okay, all right, it's time, it's totally okay for the CEO to ask the question, well, why? You know, why Why are you buying us? How are you going to use us? How is, you know, like, what's your rationale? When you go in front of your board of directors and you're going to get approval, tell me the story. Like, I want to understand how are you selling this deal to your board or to, if it's a publicly traded company, if it's a large enough deal, to your, you know, to shareholders and to analysts. How is this being positioned? And you know, what are your plans for the company? And if you get them to our, t- and then like, all right, and let's go build a model. So if you plug this into, what do you think, what's your forecast? And if you get them to articulate the why, the rationale, and get them to monetize, you know, put some numbers against it, they're almost negotiating against themselves by that. Like basically you're saying, Okay, yes. <laughs> like, that's a great rationale. All right, the price just went up. <laughs> Got know? it. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that it also comes back to, as well, having that trust factor, right? That they're actually going to be very, very honest in terms of what their vision is with the two companies working together. They almost have to in order to get the transaction done. I mean, hopefully, if, you know, the, you talked a little bit about bankers. And one of the things that bankers do is they run a process and they identify potential acquirers. And if you're doing your job well enough, so let's separate out strategic from financial, chances are you probably know the top three to five, seven, either they're your competitors or they're the the large players in the field. Like you know who the likely acquirers are and you've probably already started talking to them if you're doing your job well. 
if you're building those relationship muscles, then you're also gaining information and learning and you probably can are already come prepared in crafting that rationale. A financial buyer is different. And actually, that's where bankers can, in technology particularly, most CEOs, they probably know who the top three or five acquirers are in most cases, but they probably don't know, have relationships with many of the financial buyers, with many of the private equity firms. And so a banker can add value there. A banker also, from a venture capital perspective, one of the things that a banker does is it provides some legal liability protection. And what I mean by that is a disgruntled shareholder, if you have a banker and you run a process and you talk to you know, 20 companies and you get the best deal you possibly can, it's much harder for a disgruntled shareholder to say uh, that wasn't a fair process. So there is some protection. So one of the reasons that VCs like having bankers sometimes, you know, maybe they can get help you get a better deal, maybe, but they also provide a layer of legal liability protection. Got it. Got it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like too, you know, I think we're going back to our original discussion and I think part of the purpose of the book about building relationships, you know, from the very beginning and devoting, you know, a little bit of time towards, you know, what an exit could look like or, you know, maybe just the direction of the company uh, per year in this kind of way on an exit level, not like the vision so much level. But it seems like there might be maybe an over-reliance on bankers in some ways because you think, hey, like obviously we want to, as a VC, you want to get your return and everything like that. But you kind of just think, okay, let's just put it in the banker's uh, shelf and then they're going to kind of take care of everything and run, you know, a, a smooth process, which could certainly happen, but and not to say it doesn't happen. But at the same time, I think to your point, you have to take ownership on your company for the CEO. You really have to understand their incentives too about if someone approaches you for, for acquire and not have an over reliance um, on a banker and their process. There's certain things you can't outsource. With a banker, they can identify, they can help you tell your story. They can help you put your data room together, although I would argue your data room is an ongoing process and it should always be together. They can help you identify candidates and reach out, although I argue that that's the CEO's job, not the banker's job in most cases. And they can help you negotiate. But negotiation, you know, all transactions run into challenges. And it's the CEO, mano to mano, eyeball to eyeball, looking at their counterpart where you're going to get the deal done. And it's not going to be through the banker. And when we talk to the heads of Corp Dev at all the major tech companies, man, they hated bankers. Now, they hate bankers for the obvious reasons, right? But every single one of them is like, rah, 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 I can't stand bankers. Right, they had no value. I just want to talk to the CEO, and part of that's sour grapes because the bankers are squeezing them. But realistically, too, the question is, where's their added value? And um, you know, we—I believe you can't outsource relationships. That same thing with lawyers. We think that CEOs should get the very best M&A attorney, not your business banker, not your brother-in-law. But the guy who does hundreds of deals, not one, maybe one you know, in their career, you want the pro, 
when it comes to selling your company. But even working with the pro, at the end of the day, while you're not a lawyer, when it comes to business terms, the fundamental business terms, you cannot outsource that to your attorney. So like, okay, CEOs, it's time to wear your big boy pants. Like, <laughs> you know, there's, there, like, it's time to like, you got to really step up here. How also do you make sure, you know, let's say you're a founder, you've built, you know, incredible relationships with, you know, it could be potential strategics, it could be even like PE firms on the financial side. But how do you make sure as well, let's say like there's interest in your company being, you know, acquired at, at some point in time. How do you make sure you're not going down a fishing expedition for on, on the acquirer side? And that happens. Fishing expeditions happen, for sure. But they're, they're less frequent than you might think. Um, there are some companies who have a reputation. Most don't because that reputation, that legacy lives on. And by the way, most CEOs know which companies do fishing ex- expeditions and which ones are serious. But once again, if you build long-term relationships built on trust, you kind of know, you know. And you could tell if you're really focusing on fair and you build the rationale and you're not getting the, the answers that you want, if you don't think the culture's, like, you just have to be listening carefully and protect your time. Because I would say in my experience, it's like 90-10 maybe 95.5, where 5% of the time, there really are fishing expeditions, and, and it happens. And people steal other people's intellectual property. It does happen, but it's pretty rare in my experience because, and that actually brings us to, the, I think, the last point, which is your legacy matters, your relationships matter. And I ask CEOs all the time, when the transaction's over, and you're going to start your next company because many of us, you know, we're serial entrepreneurs. Once we do it once, we got to do it a second time. Will your employees come to work for your next company? Did they feel like you fought for them, that you treated them well? Would your investors invest in your next company? Because a CEO, there's a lot of room for a very nuanced negotiation between payouts today versus earnouts in the future and who gets what. And the CEO sometimes has to tread a very careful line there. Would your the leader of Corp Dev who bought your company, would they buy your next company? Your legacy and your relationships, you know, we think in terms of decades, not in terms of a moment in time in a transaction. And we don't view life as a zero-sum game. We view the ability to that you will maximize return, not only in this deal, but in future deals to come. Mark, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Oh man, Mike, you're, you're good at this. Like those are great questions. I really appreciate it. And I, anytime, like anytime I can help you or your listeners and um, you know, please reach out. Uh, we wrote the book to give back. We wrote the book to help. And I, you know, I'm always glad. Both Mert, my co-author, and I, we're always glad to help if we can. Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Thank you. All right. Awesome. 
And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Again, I think this is a pretty unique episode for this show because but we don't really talk about the exit. So really loved having Mark on the show. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.